following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. From chapter 22, verse, uh, beginning of verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, where, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We'll stop there. Um, Jesus says in this passage, uh, he says, I have earnestly desire to eat this, this Passover meal with you. And uh, the wording that's used in the Greek uh, gives extra significance to it. It's not just a mild desire. Literally, it says, I've desired with desire to eat this meal with you. And uh, it's, it's a little bit of a strange expression. And, and we, we've got to start off by really asking the question, uh, why was Jesus so anticipating and so longing to eat this Passover with the disciples? Um, he had had many with them, at least three years he had celebrated the Passover with them, and ever since a boy had celebrated Why was this one so significant? Um, of course, we know that it is the Last Supper. We know that uh, it was just hours before Jesus would be arrested and would, uh, would be nailed to the cross, so certainly it has significance for that. Uh, but uh, we know from what happens a little bit later in the garden that Jesus is not necessarily looking forward to the cross. Um, uh, he, he's looking forward to what it will fulfill, but he is and will be agonizing over uh, the need to go to the cross. So, so what is it about this meal, this celebration, that is so important and meaningful for Jesus? And I want to try to answer that question this morning. Um, and, of course, it is the, the short and easy answer, which you know, is that, well, it is when he instituted the Lord's Supper. It was his last supper, but he was to turn it into the Lord's Supper, the communion celebration. Um, 
And uh, the Lord's Supper is the name given by the early church, and uh, Paul uses that name in his letter to the Corinthians. Um, so I believe Jesus looked forward to this Passover celebration ultimately because he knew that something wonderful and eternally glorious was about to take place as he transformed this most important Jewish festival into something new. And so he, he's anticipating what's about to happen as he takes the old tradition, the old celebration of Passover, and transforms it into something wonderful and new. Um, and it was a transformation that was brought about not so much by changing Passover into something different as much as by uh, really inserting himself in the middle of the celebration uh, and thus giving it its greatest and truest meaning. And I want to unpack what all that means uh, as we look through it. And I hope, uh, what I hope to do today is to give you really a deeper picture of what what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. Uh, it is something that we celebrate often, and it's easy because of its familiar, familiarity to maybe lose some of its depth. So I want to just relook at it again today and see how Jesus transformed this, this very Jewish holiday and made it uh, such an important sacrament for the church. Uh, and he starts off, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the preparation, but Jesus starts off explaining that, uh, that it was the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And he commissions Peter and John to go make preparations. Uh, and he gives them some kind of cryptic instructions and commentators and people kind of debate if this is a miracle or if this is just Jesus prearranging things. We don't really know. It doesn't say. Uh, and it doesn't really matter because uh, that's not the point. The point is this, that Jesus is very much in control of events. And uh, from, from Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem the previous Sunday until, uh, until he's nailed to the cross, Luke goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is in control, that things are not happening randomly or arbitrarily or outside of his direct control. And we see that here with his preparation for the, uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, also, something to note in this is, is, is to just be aware of what it meant for them to prepare this meal. Uh, we get this picture that Jesus had either through um, miraculous intervention or whether he had prearranged this with the owner of the house, we don't know. But uh, it was in the city of Jerusalem in an upper room. Uh, and the way it was, it was to be done, to eat the Passover meal, you needed to eat it uh, either in the temple itself or within the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus has made those plans and preparations, and he sends Peter and John, and they find everything as, as Jesus described. But, but what exactly did they prepare? What did it mean for them to prepare this Passover meal? Uh, well, first, uh, first importance is that it meant going to the temple and uh, sacrificing the Passover lamb. And, and they, would, they would probably purchase a lamb, uh, from the money changers that Jesus chased out of the temple, who may be set up in a different place now, um, bought the sheep, take it in, uh, went through the, the ceremony of, of slaughtering it and, uh, and essentially cooking it on the altar. And then they would take this cooked lamb back to the house. And on the way, they would buy some key ingredients. They would buy the bitter herbs that, 
that was necessary for the celebration. They would buy the bread that they would need and the wine to go with the lamb. And then they would return and they would prepare this table. And uh, the Passover was a very elaborate uh, meal. And so they would set everything up and get everything ready so that when Jesus and the others came later, everything was prepared. Now, we don't know exactly the exact format that Jesus followed, um, but we do have a pretty good idea. And uh, modern, in, in modern day, uh, Jews celebrate a Seder dinner uh, that's about, based on a tradition that's some 1,700 years old. Uh, and that tradition, while we can't make exact direct links, we know is based largely on what Jesus would have done. And so, um, so they prepared this meal, and they prepared to celebrate it, as was the custom of the day for Jews. Uh, and so it says, that, it says the hour came, and Jesus came, and he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus knows, he knows what's coming. He knows that the hour of the cross has come. And he knows that just as this is the day the Passover lamb must be slaughtered. That he is about to be uh, sacrificed as the, as the Passover lamb. And he says, I, will not, I tell you, I will not eat it, uh, this Passover again, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Um, so Jesus begins with, uh, and there's some keys in here that indicate to us that Jesus is, is following the very prescribed format and order of uh, Jewish Passover service. Uh, it's the typical observance of how they would have done this. Uh, and, of course, the Passover, we, we need to do a little bit of background. The Passover is, is celebrating uh, when God delivered Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And, of course, we uh, hopefully know the stories of Moses and Aaron and uh, all the plagues that came on Egypt, which culminated in uh, the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And the Jews were spared uh, from the death angel as they killed the lamb, and they, they took its blood and they applied it to the doorposts of their home. And when the death angel came, it passed over their houses, and their sons were spared. Uh, and they were redeemed. They were set free as Pharaoh told them, Go, get out of here, leave. And God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And so that's what they celebrate. Uh, it's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is actually a seven-day festival where they would eat only unleavened bread because they, they rushed out of Egypt. They didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise, so they ate unleavened bread. Uh, and one uh, day, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was Passover, where they would sacrifice this lamb and they would have this meal. Um, So, uh, so the first thing it says is it says that they reclined at table. Now, we may just kind of gloss over that, but it's actually part of the official uh, Passover meal. And um, this was not how people normally ate. And, you know, there's, oftentimes you get this picture that they all ate on the floor kind of laying down. Not true. Okay. They ate uh, sitting up just like we would. Uh, however, it was, it was required for Passover to, to, to uh, recline, to lay down. And if you, uh, in, in modern, the modern order of service, you've got to recline on your left, your left arm. 
Of course, it makes sense because if you're right-handed, you can eat with your right hand. If you're leaning on your right, it's just messier. It's kind of funny. They also say some of the, some of the rabbis who have pondered why we, why we recline on the left side, they say that um, it could be a choking hazard. <laughs> They've got some elaborate explanation for your esophagus. And, uh, I, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, they, were, they were to recline. Uh, and the significance of it is that reclining was the posture of kings, right? And it was this picture that they had been slaves, but now they were set free, and now they are, they're like the wealthy. They're like kings. They are free people, and they can enjoy the luxury of reclining. So Jesus did that with his disciples. They are pictured reclining a table. Uh, sorry, Leonardo da Vinci, you're wrong, okay, if you've seen his painting. Uh, although a very nice painting. I'm not knocking his painting. It's just um, not, not, not completely accurate. Uh, and then it says, uh, it says that Jesus uh, took a cup and blessed it. Uh, now, uh, this, this, should, this should throw off all kinds of alarms for all of us, right? Because um, we all know that you do not start communion with a cup, right? What comes first? What comes first? The bre- Some of you look confused on this. Some of you are going, oh, no, oh, no, I don't, I don't know. Well, let me tell you, you've got to get this, you've got to know this. This is very important. The bread comes first. And the, and the reason I know this is very important is way back, a long, long time ago, 20 years ago now, when I was first pastoring my first church, uh, we, we, did, we did church there very formally. It was, uh, I was about 30 years old. Um, the, the next youngest member after me was old enough to be my parent. Uh, most of them were old enough to be my grandparents, right? So they were very formal, very traditional, and you know, we sung a lot of hymns, and it was good. And we, we, when we did communion, we did it you know, with the table in front, with the little poofy little uh, sheet over the top of communion. You know, we took it off and folded it, and we took the lid off, and it was very formal. Right? And uh, I would take and I, w- I would pray over it, and I would hand out to the elders who would all come and stand in the front as we prayed, and I would hand them the dishes to, to pass out, right? And I would say the right scriptures, trying to do this well. And uh, on this one particular day, I said the scriptures, I prayed the prayer, and I picked up the cups, right? I picked up the grape juice first, and I handed it to all the elders, their tray of grape juice. And their eyes got this big around, and they all just kind of stared at me like the world was going to end. And I, and I didn't understand what the problem was. And I, I thought, I was, I was really confused, and I, I said, yeah, go, you can go ahead and pass it out. So they all with shocked and stunned looks turned around and fear and trembling passed out the cup before the bread. And at some point during the communion service, as we're going through this, it dawned on me what's happening. (gasps) I got the order wrong. Ah. And I was just waiting for lightning to fall from heaven and strike us all dead because we put the cup before the bread. Hence why in our church now we pass them out simultaneously. So I don't... I don't have to worry about getting confused, right? Well, Luke is clearly confused because Luke's got the order wrong, right? It says that Jesus, um, you know, blessed the cup first. What is Luke thinking? And to confuse matters even more, there's a cup, then there's a bread, then there's a second cup. Uh, There's two cups. Who knew, right? So what does all that mean? Well... Actually, 
we know, and this we do know, because there's, there's uh, documents, Talmuds that date back to Jesus' day that p- describe Passover. They celebrated actually with four cups. We know that, right? And Jesus, when he uh, led the disciples in this, this uh, Passover service, uh, would have followed this prescribed order of four cups. And they were four cups of blessing. And, and the, uh, the meaning of these cups comes from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And I think I have a scripture for this, I think. Yeah. Uh, Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden, uh, burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Here's the four cups. The first cup was a cup of sanctification as God called them out as a separate people. He says, I will bring you out. I will consecrate you, sanctify you as a set-apart people. The second cup was a cup of deliverance. He says, I will deliver you from, from slavery. Right? So they celebrated uh, the deliverance that God brought them. Third, the third cup was a cup of redemption. And it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. Right? And, and mark these in your head. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there and hold, hold it because we'll, we'll come back to these cups. Uh, verse 7, uh, I will take you to be my people. The fourth cup was the cup of restoration where God would make them his people and he ultimately would send them to the promised land and make them his nation, a holy nation consecrated to him. Right? Uh, now, uh, it's a little confusing because Luke doesn't tell us which cup this is. Uh, but it would have been at least not the last cup because there's one more cup that c- comes later. Cups one, two, or three. Um, very likely it was, it was either the first or the second cup, the cup of sanctification or the cup of deliverance. Uh, we don't know, but, but just look at these scriptures and think about this. Okay? Just put these two scriptures together in your mind for a moment. Verse 17, he took a cup and we had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay? Jesus somehow connects this cup with the coming kingdom, the coming fulfillment of God's final kingdom that would come one day in the future. Um, so perhaps Jesus just read Exodus 6.6, 6, uh, where it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Uh, and Jesus is, is connecting uh, God's, God's sanctifying them and setting them up as a holy people, as a holy kingdom. And he's relating it to his final kingdom that Jesus is waiting for. Or perhaps it's the cup of deliverance, um, where, where God says, I will deliver you from, deliver you from slavery. Right? And Jesus is saying, uh, I'm, I'm delivering you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and one day I will eat with you. Luke does not mark the cup, and theologians debate over which cup and which it means. Here's what I think. I think Luke does not tell us which cup because Jesus gives new meaning and purpose to all the cups. Right? Jesus fulfills them all. 
And so uh, we can rest assured that Jesus is all of those things. He is the one who sanctifies. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who restores. And all through what he is about to do on the cross. Something else that's significant we need to remember from this cup uh, is that it's one cup. It was one cup. He says to them, um, they took the cup and, and he gave it to them and he said, you need to, to, to drink it together, right? Um, and it's a picture that, uh, that it was to be celebrated as a, as a community event, right? They came together and shared this one cup together. And then moving on, it says, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. So again, there's lots of cups, there's lots of other steps, which by the way, let me give a, a plug here. Uh, every year for the last couple of years, including this year, we celebrate a Seder dinner. Uh, if you really want a picture of what all happens, I encourage you to come. It will be this year, March 25th, Good Friday. Um, and and you, you really get a picture of what all happens, all the steps. But there would be cups and there would be dipping and there would be hand washing and there would be saying of prayers. And at one point, they would take bread. And again, I think I have a picture somewhere of the bread. Yeah, we need to back up uh, the bread. Where's our? There it is. Three pieces of bread. Unleavened bread, kind of like big overgrown crackers, rather crispy. Um, uh, known as uh, modern day as matzah, right? And uh, there was three pieces of bread. Three pieces of bread. And at one point in the service, uh, as they're going through this meal, uh, the person leading the service, leading the meal, would take the, the second, the middle uh, piece of bread, also known as the afikomen, right? Now, why were there three pieces of bread? Well, most people believe that it represents the Jews will we'll tell you that it represents Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they weren't to take the first piece of bread or the third piece. They're specifically supposed to take the second one, the piece of bread that corresponds to Isaac, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaac, right? Uh, and it's, it's a picture of a couple of things. First of all, it is a picture of brokenness or affliction. Right? And in fact, if you read uh, a Jewish um, Passover Seder dinner service, it will say this. Um, it is the bread of brokenness or affliction. And, and they are to read, this is the bread of brokenness which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. And it was to remember the affliction and hardship they endured as slaves in Egypt. Uh, but Jesus says this, now get this, he takes this bread, this bread of affliction, and he breaks it and he says what? This bread is now not Isaac, it's me, right? I represent now, or this bread now represents me and my life. And I think it means two things, at least. First of all, it's no longer the bread of, of the affliction of Israel. It's now remembering the affliction of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the one who is broken, who is afflicted, or was about to be broken and afflicted. As it says in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Right? 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Right? Jesus is saying, I am now the, the bread, the second piece of bread. I am the one who is afflicted. My life is the one that is, is broken. Because that's the cost of redemption. But it also represents, a, a, represents Isaac. There's even a greater picture. And the Jews will tell you it represents Isaac because uh, we remember his, uh, um, when, when Abraham took and offered him as a sacrifice, right? And the Jews make a big deal of this, and they believe that Abraham went to the mountain that later became the site of the temple in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. And they believe that it was on that very mountain in that very spot that Abraham uh, took his son and bound him and laid him on an altar and raised a knife and was about to plunge the knife into his son to kill him. And God stopped him, remember? And God provided a substitute, a ram. And God said to Abraham, I see now that you, you are faithful to me. Right? But what a picture of what God would do in Jesus. Right? Jesus is, is the Isaac, but he's a, a better Isaac, a more perfect Isaac, because uh, he, unlike Isaac, was not spared. His father did uh, slay him, that he would be a sacrifice for our sin. Right? He became the substitute for us, the ram that died in our place. Uh, and so there's this huge meaning. Right? When Jesus says, if you're, if you're a Jew and you understand Passover and you're going through this ceremony and Jesus takes this bread, the second piece of the afikoman, and he said, this, this bread, this is my body broken for you. Right? And then we get to the next cup, <laughs> okay. the last cup. You've got to end with the juice, right? Uh, and it says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Again, we don't know exactly what cup, but it would make sense if it was the third cup, the cup of redemption, which would come after uh, the breaking of the second piece of the, of the matzah bread. Um, and it was the cup of redemption. Uh, Exodus 6, 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Uh, the Mishnah, one of the Jewish documents that describes the Passover says this. The Mishnah says the wine in the third cup represents the shed blood of the lamb that was applied to the doorposts in Egypt, causing the plague of death to pass over. So picture this, if they knew that, if that's what, really what this cup was, uh, regardless, it's, it's surely what Jesus intended. This, is, this, cup, this cup represents my blood. Right? It's no longer the blood of a lamb that's sacrificed. It's no, it's no longer the blood of this lamb that we're eating in this Passover dinner. Now it's my blood that's being shed and applied so that sin and death is removed and death passes over you. It's my blood. Um, he is the great and the truer and the perfect Passover lamb who died in our place. Um, and through the pouring out of, of, of blood, he bore the wrath and judgment of God. 
He says, I redeem you with great acts of judgment. And, And Jesus went to the cross and it says, He became sin for us. God poured out His wrath, the rightful judgment of sin that we deserved. He poured it out on the cross on Jesus. That's what it meant, that His blood was shed for us. But it can also be the fourth cup, the last cup. right? And it fulfills this one as well, the cup of restoration. Exodus 6-7 says this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to, your, uh, give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Um, God brought Israel out and he, he made a covenant with them, right? A, they entered into a covenant relationship at Mount Sinai. Uh, but Jesus says now, look, I am writing a new covenant in my blood a new basis of how you relate to God. See, the Jews related to God how? Well, through offering of all these sacrifices and by keeping the laws and commandments, right? their relationship with God was ruled and determined by rules. Uh, and it was an act of faith. It was an act of, of obedience. It was respon- in response to God's deliverance. But life for them was governed by uh, 613 laws and commands and all the number of uh, traditions that came out of those 613 commands. But Jesus said, I am writing for you a new contract, a new covenant relationship. And it's no longer based on your ability to keep all those laws. I have kept them. I have fulfilled them on your behalf. And I am uh, attributing to your account the fulfillment of those laws through my blood. And so now, through faith, through grace, we have a a relationship based on what? Our goodness? (laughs) Praise God, no. Based on our ability to keep all the commands? No. It's based on Jesus' ability and on his blood, on his, and his work for us on the cross. Right. So, so, that, so they have this meal, and that's just some of what happened at the meal, but it's the parts that Jesus picked out. It's the parts that Jesus emphasized. Um, let me go back and just wrap this up. I want to do two things. I want to talk about how Jesus fulfilled, how he... Um, brought new meaning to Passover. And then I want to talk about how we can celebrate it now. So first thing, the, the fulfillment, the transformation. Uh, what is it that Jesus did to transform Passover? Um, go back, let me read verse 15 again, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer the cross For I tell you, I will not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus looks forward to a day when the kingdom of God will will be ultimately fulfilled, whatever that means. And so he took the cup and he gave thanks and he divided it. He says, drink among yourselves. And then he says again in verse 18, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Uh, This was Jesus' last supper. Right? 
Uh, he ate and drank with the disciples, but he would not eat again. He would not celebrate Passover again for a very long time. Not until the kingdom of God was ultimately and completely restored. Uh, and Jesus looked forward to that day. And he says, I will eat with you again on that day. There will be, when, when God's kingdom is fully restored, when the work of the cross is fully unpacked, and uh, its full work of redemption is completed. He says, at that time, I'm going to restore the universe. One of the interesting things about Passover is that they celebrated what God did delivering them from Egypt and from bondage and setting them up in a new, a new kingdom, a new place. But for the Jews in Jesus' day, this had to be a painful experience, right? Because God had set them free. He had made them a holy nation. He had given them a kingdom. But in Jesus' day, they were not a free people. They were under Roman domination. The, the land that they lived in did not belong to them. Right? They had lost their, their nation. Uh, the king that they sat under was not a Jewish king. Uh, Herod claimed to be a Jew. He's only half Jew, and he's mostly a, a bad Jew at that. Right? Um, and he sat as one under the authority of the Roman emperor. Um, they were being afflicted. And in many respects, they were back in a bondage, much like they were in the days of Egypt. They paid taxes to Caesar, and they resented it deeply. So when the Jews celebrated Passover, and to this day, when they celebrate Passover, it's not only remembering where they came from, but it's remembering all of God's unfulfilled promises. And it's looking to the future. And so, uh, if, if you know this, at the end of the Passover, what is the last thing everybody says together when they, when they finish the, the celebration? You've got to say it loud because I'm deaf. Next year in Jerusalem. Good, good memory. Ready, ready to go. Next year in Jerusalem. Uh, does it really mean that next year they're going to all do this in Jerusalem? Well, it's a hope. It's the hope that next year the kingdom will come and they will all celebrate the fulfilled kingdom in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying next year, only well, not next year, he's saying in a while, right? In a while, next time in Jerusalem, we will celebrate this meal together in my presence, right? So it looks forward. It looks forward to the day when God has ultimately restored the world and all the brokenness in it is fixed. All the, and, and we know we see, if you watch the news, right? what's going on in the news today? Is it good news or is it a world at war? Is it a world where there is great unrest and where there is anything but peace? Where people are fearful and worried about all the threats they feel coming against them. And people want to hide and run away. But we celebrate uh, in hope that the cross not only saves us, but it is the promise of complete restoration of everything that God made. And someday God will fix things up 100%. Right? Um, and all that comes about because Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. 
Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that Passover pictures. Um, and here's the thing. Jesus, Jesus, in a sense, kidnaps. And in fact, the Jews accuse of this. And, uh, and, and there's many critics that would say to us when we celebrate our, our Seder dinner as Christians that we are religion robbers. We're thieves, right? We, we've hijacked their traditions. And they say, how would you feel if we hijack Christmas? It's like, well, go for it. Don't be, you know, please do, right? Please celebrate your Messiah that we celebrate his birth. Go for it, right? Um, they're offended. They're offended that we take their tradition and their holiday and we put Jesus right in the middle of it. Um, how, how do we have the nerve to do that? Well, I'll tell you how we have the nerve to do it. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did in this meal. Right? He took this Passover celebration that looked back and celebrated God's great act of deliverance. And he said, here's the deal. That was all, it was real, and it was true, and it was important. But in the end, it was all simply a picture of something better and greater. I am that better and greater salvation. Right? And no longer is it an exodus from slavery in Egypt, but it's an exodus from slavery to sin and death that holds every person in bondage and that oppresses all humanity. Uh, and Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb uh, whose blood is, is applied to our lives and causes death and judgment to pass over us. Uh, he is the true price of redemption. And, you know, redemption means to purchase something. The Israelites were purchased out of Egypt at what cost? Well, the firstborn of every Egyptian. That was the purchase price. Jesus is now the perfect and ultimate firstborn son who is the purchase price for our redemption, for all, all those who will trust in his salvation. Uh, Jesus is now the ultimate and truer and perfect Isaac, as we talked about, who is the substitute for us. And he brings us a truer and greater free freedom and ultimately a truer and greater kingdom. Right? So Jesus does hijack Passover, but he does not change it, right? But he does transform it. He does not dilute or side rail its meaning but he brings its meaning to its higher and greater reality by transforming it and giving it its greatest meaning in himself. He is the true bread. Uh, he is the true wine um, that gives us ultimate deliverance. Right, so, so hopefully it's expanded your view a little bit and you see now... Uh, what Jesus did has deep Old Testament roots. Right? So how do we do this? How do we remember well? Let me give you just a few tips, and then we're going to practice it. Um, we're actually doing communion two weeks in a row. Also, I think could unravel the thread of the universe. Um, huge thanks to Grace who made me do this, because uh, we did it last week, and I just couldn't organize it all. And she said, no, you have to do this. And she did a lot of the work. So big, big huge thanks to Grace and others who helped. Um, 
it'd be great to do it every week. The main reason we don't is just the logistics of it. Um, I encourage you to do it. If you have a home group, uh, celebrate in your home group often. You could do it every week, really. Uh, it's just a lot easier to do there. But how do we do this well? Uh, well, first of all, Jesus. this is what Jesus tells us. Let me read it one more time. He said, uh, you know, he took the... Um, he took the bread um, and he gave it to them. He broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What does he mean by do this? Well, Jesus lifted out a couple elements of the Passover meal and he set them up as a sacrament for the church, right? A celebration meal for the church. Uh, the early church called it the Lord's Supper. Paul uses that in First uh, Corinthians when he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, right? Uh, so we celebrate it as the Lord's Supper. And he says, every time you do this, every time you come to this, this special table, uh, that's set apart with the, the bread and, and the juice, the wine. He says, he says, do this in remembrance of me, to remember me. So we do this as a, a regular activity, primarily and, and, and for, the, for the purpose of remembering Jesus uh, and bringing into our present awareness the reality of that great event in history when Jesus died on the cross. Right? Um, now, remembering was a, was a very important word in the Jewish tradition. Uh, and it has a lot more weight and meaning to it than it probably does to us. And there's different levels of remembering. Uh, you can remember things like a birthday. So today we're actually remembering Denise's birthday it's her birthday today. Everybody say happy birthday. Um, we, don't, we don't have to sing yet. <laughs> you can sing later. Um, and, and a birthday, you remember what? Well, you really you're remembering yeah, that you were born, but it's really just remembering the passing of time. And so we mark the numbers. And so with a birthday, the number is really significant. And some people get to mark it in years. Some people get to mark it in decades, so I won't tell you which birthday Denise's is, but she's marking it in decades. Right? Some people mark it in centuries. Okay, just to be clear, she's not marking it in centuries. Real clear on that one. Right? Um, so that's, a, that's one way of remembering. But, but some, some, some things we remember have even more weight and significance. And we, we remember more than just the marking of time. We, 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 we remember it as a piece of history that was so dramatic that it defines and shapes us. Okay, an event that is part of our history that defines and shapes us. So, for example, an anniversary is more like that, right? Okay, it's not enough just to mark as our anniversary the passing of time. Well, I've endured 30 years with you now, right? Maybe that's how it is, but that's probably not how it should be, right? It should be celebrating that on that day we came together as two people and we became one. And it's defined who we are now. I'm no longer a, a private person. I'm a couple, right? And I, uh, I cannot be thought of 
Uh, I can't be introduced. I can't view my life apart from who I am with my life mate. Right? It, it's 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 more than just marking time. It's um, it's it's life shaping. Right? But there's even yet a deeper meaning of memory of remembering. Some events go even further than just defining and shaping us, but we remember them in order to actually change us and make us into something very different. Uh, remember some things, we remember some things because they should be life-transforming. Uh, one example of that would be uh, remembering the Holocaust. Uh, have any of you had a chance to go to one of the Holocaust museums? Anybody? Some, I've actually got to go to two, one in Jerusalem and one in Washington, D.C., both times very life-impacting events. And it's not a fun memory. In fact, it's a painful, horrific memory. And to see the images and to understand what happened there uh, is, is horrible. Uh, but it's important to remember those things. Well, why? Well, to make sure it never happens again, right? to remember where hatred can end, where prejudice can end, and to remember what human beings are capable of, right? That uh, any human being can come to that point, right? can come to that place of horrible destruction and hatred uh, over another group of people. And so we remember events like that because it should change us. It should transform our whole being. And that's why they make those museums, because they hope that it will change people. Well, I believe Jesus, remembering Jesus captures all of those. It's a memory that ought to shape and define who we are now as God's children. So we're not just remembering an event that happened in the past. We're remembering an event that happened in the past that's still affecting us, that should still be impacting us. And it certainly should be remembering it in a way that changes us, that we see that we were once children of wrath, but God poured that wrath out upon Jesus and his flesh through the pouring out and shedding of his blood so that we could be his children. And it should change us to be people of of great gratitude and worship. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.